Henry Ford famously said, history is bunk. Uh, I don't know what bunk means, but uh, the idea that he was talking about is that he believed that history, history was the past, it had uh, no bearing on the present, uh, there was nothing that to, could be learned in history, history need not be studied nor considered. Uh, every schoolboy who's hated history lessons has a champion in Henry Ford. Uh, For so many, history is a collection of dull, dry facts, dates, names, battles, kings. If that's your experience of history, then you might well dismiss it. But history is more than mere facts. Historians are engaged in storytelling, not science. Historians are people with a certain uh, view of the world and of life. They have an agenda. They have biases, uh, just like you and I. A book was published last year, Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past. It's a book about the historians who've written the history books for the last thousands of years. Uh, One review of the book observed, history is not a science. It is simply a form of storytelling. It's storytelling with facts. And the facts do not speak for themselves. And what do historians want the facts for? Well, it depends on uh, who the history writer is and what the facts have been chosen, what the facts they've chosen to include. Now, historical accounts have been written to indoctrinate, uh, to entertain, to warm, to justify, to condemn. But the purpose is chosen because it matters personally to the historian, and it almost always because it matters to the historian, it matters to us as readers. What history never does is provide us with an impersonal, objective account of past events. Historians want their readers not only to understand what happened, but to be moved by what happened. Historians want to to capture what it felt like. What they're doing is not too different than the novelist, uh, but they they are trying to, both of them, make a vanished world appear and come to life on the page. Uh, Novelists are allowed to invent, but historians have to work within verifiable facts. They can't make stuff up. That's uh, one of the rules of the game. But they want to give readers a sense of what it was like to be alive at a certain time and place. And that sense is not a fact, but it's what gives the facts meaning. And as we come to the books of 1 and 2 Kings in the Bible, we are reading history, but history with an agenda, history told with a purpose. Uh, The writer of Kings has produced his work to change the lives of God's people. He wants his readers to respond, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, with all our will. He wants our future to be different because of the past that he has described. Now, the writer of Kings is living in exile in Babylon. Israel, Jerusalem, the temple of God have been conquered and obliterated. The people of God have been scattered. And the question is, how did they get there? What what lessons can be learned from history so that we don't repeat this? Over the last 200 years, Christianity in the Western world has been on a steady decline. 
Uh, when the Treaty of Waitangi was being uh, drafted 183 years ago, Christian missionaries were significantly involved in shaping the document. But can you imagine if our country were to go down the path of uh, becoming a republic in the near future? There's no way any Christians would be invited to shape that constitutional document. What's gone wrong for Christianity over the last two centuries in countries like ours so that we find ourselves pushed to the margins? Or take the history of Hastings Baptist Church. Uh, Just looking at membership numbers over our 113 years, there's a steady growth. Uh, The Depression, the war years, and and then accelerating, then the 1970s, and then a rapid decline and a kind of leveling off over the last 20 years or so. What happened? Were there mistakes made? Are there lessons to be learned? Uh, this is a room with parents and grandparents. And as you look back on your life and how it's turned out, is it what you imagined when you were younger? And what advice, what wisdom would you give to your children, your grandchildren, knowing what you now know? See, under God's hand, the writer of Kings, as he recounts Israel's history, has warnings and lessons for us, corporately and individually. Well, we saw in the opening chapters a a weak and a frail King David who eventually uh, installs Solomon as the new king. It's not straightforward. It's full of politics and intrigue, plotting and bloodshed. But ultimately, God's purposes prevail. God's promises are kept. And chapter 2 finishes with, the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. And Solomon is the center, uh, center stage for the next nine chapters. And this morning, we're looking at chapters 3 and 4. Uh, And we're going to uh, see Solomon famously asking God for wisdom and then just as famously exercising the wisdom. But there's a top and a tail. Uh, Before that, uh, we come to the, before we get to the famous bits, uh, we need to see that our author has given us some information about Solomon. Uh, Five things that are confusing, ambiguous, bewildering. See, chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he'd finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Uh, Firstly, if you've read the history of God's people in the Bible up to this point, there is no way you could think that anything good is going to come of an alliance with Egypt. Uh, Egypt is notorious in the biblical account. Uh, It's the land of slavery. It's the land that persecuted God's people. Egypt is the poster child For the ungodly. And yet here is Solomon making a political alliance with Egypt through marriage. Now is this morally wrong? Is he breaking a rule? Is this disobedience on the part of Solomon? No. 
I'm sure it was touted as a brilliant strategy for managing the relationship between these two powerful nations, Israel and Egypt, in Solomon's time. Was it wise? Well, with the perspective of hindsight, doesn't seem like a good move. Seems like the seed of Solomon's failings later in life. But who could know that in the moment? Uh, Secondly, sacrifices at the high places. It's going to be one of the sour notes used to measure so many kings who follow after Solomon. Even the good kings are stained by this repeated summary phrase, the high places, however, were not removed. The high places are hilltops, uh, rocky outcrops, some high point on the terrain, and that's where people offered sacrifices to idols. Sacrifices at the high places is one of the key routes to Israel engaging in pagan idolatry. But, but here we have Solomon offering sacrifices to the Lord at the high places. Uh, there is a reason offered. The temple hadn't been built yet. Seems like an acceptable reason. Certainly when Solomon offers sacrifices to the Lord at Gibeon, Uh, he seems to have been rewarded with a dream when he encounters the Lord. And yet, what about the tabernacle that Moses built and the Ark of the Covenant where Solomon will offer sacrifices in verse 15? It's confusing. It's ambiguous. Is, Is Solomon disobeying God or is he doing what was acceptable at the time? Hard to know. There are a few other questionable elements to Solomon's actions in chapter 4. We're not told that they're wrong, but they seem a bit odd. Uh, So so thirdly, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we're introduced to Solomon's cabinet ministers, his key advisors, and one of them, verse 6, Adoniram, is in charge of forced labor. Uh, In the following chapters, it's a bit murky. Uh, the forced labor seems to be the, the Canaanites who were still living in Israel. They seem to have been pressed into forced work. But, but it also seems that Solomon forced Israelites. They were conscripted to work for him. If you want to put it harshly, he made Israelites part of his slave labor. A nation of people who was rescued out of slavery in Egypt being conscripted to work for the king? Is that a wise move? Is that right? We're not sure. Fourthly, verses 7 to 19, we read how Solomon reorganized the country. He seems to have replaced the the 12 tribes approach, the 12 clans, with 12 administrative districts. It's all about taxing these 12 districts to pay for his projects like the temple and the palace. Is that a disobedient move to go away from the 12 tribes to 12 districts? Or is this, is this a wise move? Is this progress? Will reorganizing the country make the country stronger or weaker? It's, it's hard to know. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And fifthly, chapter 4, verse 26 and 28, we're told about the thousands of horses that Solomon had in his possession. Uh, We aren't at this stage told where they've come from, but if we know our Bible well, we will have the words of Moses ringing in our ears when he wrote the rules 
for Israelite kings. Deuteronomy 17, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way. Now, powerful kings need armies and and the ultimate military weapon of the day was the horse and the chariot. Is this part of Solomon wisely establishing Israel as a powerful nation? Or is this the beginning of a slippery slope? It's, It's hard to know. Five ambiguous and confusing moves by Solomon. In the moment... Being in Solomon's court as the king establishes reign and rule, it's not hard to see how these alternative strategies look like key moves. Certainly there's no commentary given to us in 1 Kings that the actions by Solomon were wrong or disobedient. But as readers looking back through history, knowing how the story goes after Solomon, It's hard not to wonder if these new approaches were sowing the seeds that led to the nation's downfall. But it's hard to tell. You see, decision-making as God's people is not easy. We can't see into the future. Is this a wise plan or a well-intentioned blooper? Not all bad decisions are morally wrong. Sometimes we just didn't think through the consequences the collateral damage. When settlers to New Zealand introduced foreign animals like possums and stoats and pigs and deer, they didn't realise the damage that would be done to native birds and plants. They thought they were doing something good. But it's actually proved to be an ecological disaster. Did you choose the right subjects at school or university? Was that job the right one? Is this the best city for you to be living in? How many children should we have? Should I buy that thing on the internet? Do I even know what the big decisions are in my life? Marry this person or jumping in the car and I forgot to put on my seatbelt? Decision making as Christians is not easy. And here's the reality check. Each of us have already and we will continue to make bad decisions and poor choices. And they will affect us for the rest of our lives. We are sinful people who make bad decisions every day. And we make some good ones. And that is the pattern of our lives. That's the pattern of my life. And I'll let you know a secret. We all know it's the pattern of your life. We try to make good decisions. We make bad decisions. We make good decisions for bad reasons. And we make bad decisions for good reasons. And this is life in our world. And Solomon, in all his splendor, is no different than you and me. With all his wisdom, good decisions, bad decisions, and we can't always see how they work out. Even Solomon, with all his wisdom, made some questionable calls. So why would you think you will get it right every time? Decision-making as Christians is not straightforward. It's hard. Which is why we need to ask God for wisdom. Which is what we see Solomon doing in our passage. So the second thing uh, brings us to Solomon's famous request. 
Uh, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and offers him a blank check. Ask whatever you want me to give you. And to his credit, Solomon humbly recognizes his own inadequacy for the job of being king over God's people. And so chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, uh, and Solomon so asks, verse 9, for a discerning heart to govern the people. Now, in our psychological world, the heart is the center of our emotions. But in the biblical world, the heart is the center of your being. The heart is where mind and will and emotions and all that you are come together. Solomon asked that the Lord would give him clarity at the core of his being so that he would wisely judge between right and wrong. And his request is granted, verse 12. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. In addition, verse 13, Solomon will also receive wealth and honor. But do notice the challenge of verse 14. Even though Solomon will be one of the wisest people who've ever lived, equipped by God to discern right and wrong, he must still make day-to-day choices to walk in obedience to the Lord and keep the Lord's decrees and commands. See, it's, it's one thing to know right from wrong. It's another thing altogether to choose and to act on what is right and to reject and turn away from what is wrong. Now, we are so preoccupied with the question, what is God's will for my life? What's the right decision? What's the wise action here? There are books and seminars and podcasts about knowing God's will. And we think our problem is that we don't know what we should do when actually our problem is we don't obey what God has told us to do. The problem is not that God hasn't made his detailed will for our lives explicit. Our problem is we don't obey what he's already made abundantly clear. And in this regard, we are exactly like Solomon. He had to make those same decisions every day to obey that you and I need to. The question isn't knowing what the wise choice is. The issue is choosing to obey the wise choice. Now, it'd be easy to think of wisdom as some kind of sort of superpower that Solomon is given, as though now he's a hero in a Marvel movie. You know, Ant-Man can make himself really small or really big. The Hulk is incredibly strong. Spider-Man can shoot webs out and cling to walls. And Solomon's ready to join the team as the amazingly wise person. Uh, But we shouldn't think about wisdom that way, as though it's reserved for the elite, for the special. In the New Testament, James tells Christian believers like you and me, who is the wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere." As a Christian brothers and sisters, wisdom is not reserved for superheroes. It's on display in the godly lives of people who follow Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. In King Jesus, we have someone whose wisdom is greater than Solomon's, and that wisdom is offered to his followers. 
James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Solomon asked God for the wisdom he needed, and you, Christian believer, can ask God for the wisdom you need to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. Well, Solomon is granted wisdom, and so then in the next scene, Solomon is seen demonstrating his wisdom. Uh, It's the famous story of the two women who each lay claim to a baby. But again, even this story is kind of wrapped in ambiguity and strangeness. For the two women who appear before King Solomon are two prostitutes. Well, what's going on in Israel and Jerusalem that has brought these women to be selling themselves for sex? Where's the welfare and the care for these women so that they would not have to support themselves in such a tragic way? And how is it that they just sort of bowl up in front of the king? Our author doesn't give us any explanation, but again, it it just doesn't sound right. Well, these two women are presumably living in a brothel and their prostitution has resulted in each of them getting pregnant and having a baby. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened. Two babies were born, one of them died. One mother claims the other baby died and uh, uh, she swapped the dead child for the living. The second mother claims, no, this is a scam to steal her living baby. There are no witnesses, no corroborating evidence, just two women with two different stories. And famously, Solomon calls for a sword and says, cut the baby in half, give one to a half to each of them. Uh, Solomon's wisdom did not allow him to determine which mother was lying and which mother was telling the truth. And the way the account has been written, even after the the fact, you don't know what happened in that house. But Solomon's wisdom did allow him to recognize that the maternal instincts of the true mother would save her baby, even if that meant losing it to the other woman. That's the wisdom that Solomon had. He understood how mothers work, how mothers think. When all Israel heard, verse 28, the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Uh, We may not know why the prostitutes were there in Jerusalem, but it is important to see that they who are would be marginalized and shunned, even despised in society, are able to obtain justice from the king. Not only does Solomon receive from God, uh, what Solomon received from God make him able to administer justice, it allows him to to truly see and understand the world that God has made. That's that's what wisdom is. So if you look across to chapter 4, verse 32, Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, And his songs numbered a thousand and five. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. And we have some of the wisdom of Solomon preserved in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs. But ultimately we find his God-given wisdom on display in a greater and wiser king, a greater king who had no weakness when it came to his own obedience. Isaiah describes him this way. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he, by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, Jesus is that kind, wise, merciful, just king. It was about Jesus that they, the people said of his day, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? One last component to see in these chapters. Uh, it's not the wisdom and work of Solomon. It's the promises and faithfulness of the Lord. If you look across to chapter 4, verse 20. Uh, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Down to verse 25. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And then down to verse 34. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Uh, the author of 1 Kings uh, has very deliberately described the nature of life in Israel during the time of Solomon's reign as the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And the Lord promised Abraham, to your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And God also promised, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. What God promised Abraham a thousand years before Solomon was even king has been fulfilled, says the writer of Kings. What God promised, a people as numerous as the sand on the seashore, a kingdom stretching from the Euphrates River to the border with Egypt, and blessing for the world, God has delivered. Uh, more than that, this is a time of prosperity and happiness. Verse 20, they ate, they drank, they were happy. It's a time of security and certainty. There was peace on all sides. Israelites lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Here in 1 Kings 4, the promises made to Abraham a millennium earlier, promises about a people, a land, and blessing to the world, these promises have, in a very concrete way, come to fulfillment. This is the high point in the story of Israel. God's people in God's land under God's wise king. Prosperity, happiness, safety, security, all that was promised by God delivered to the people of God. But how was this climactic moment reached? Well, we can't say that Solomon achieved all this. He hasn't really done anything. He's new on the job. He's in the first four years of his reign. 
We can't say that David achieved all of this. I mean, he did win, win lots of battles and conquer lots of enemies, but this pinnacle wasn't announced under his reign. Uh, what we're meant to understand is that this is God's work. He's working across a thousand years from Abraham to Solomon to bring Israel to a place and time in history. Bible heroes have come and gone. The Israelites were faithful. The Israelites were disobedient. Enemies were triumphant. Enemies were defeated. Generations were born. Generations died. Lots of wickedness. Some obedience. Decade after decade. Century after century. And behind all of that, the Lord was at work. How was this climactic moment reached? The Lord brought it about. For the God of the Bible makes promises and he keeps them. Of course, the promises to Abraham are yet bigger still than one nation established powerfully in the Middle East. It only lasted one lifetime and then it started to unravel and fall apart. As the Apostle Paul explains, that the promises to Abraham about the land was a promise to possess the whole world. The promise for a people from Abraham was a promise for those who were descended physically from Abraham and for those who have the faith of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, one people. And blessings for the whole world really is about the whole world, people from every tribe and tongue and nation dwelling in the city of God. And the prosperity and the security finds its fulfillment in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth that will never pass away. It won't last one lifetime. It will last for eternity. For us as New Testament believers, our our hopes for the kingdom promised by the Lord Jesus are ultimately in the future. But do take comfort that that our promise-making God He will be faithful across a thousand years to bring to pass the tangible example he promised. An example of of Israel that's, that's merely a pointer to the greater kingdom to come. And if our God will keep his promises in the past, well, we should trust him all the more to keep his promises, the promises that we're holding on to in the Lord Jesus. See, kings like Solomon will come and go. He'll be followed by good kings and bad kings in history. But the God who is there is the one who can and must be trusted. Only he is powerful enough to make promises, life-giving promises, and good enough to bring them to pass. And he'll work at his own pace, even beyond the length of your life or my life, to bring to pass what he's promised. Even though we die, we can trust that God will bring to pass all he's promised. He will do it. And the writer of Kings wants wants us to see that whatever the ambiguities of life and the uncertainty that's going on with Solomon or the uncertainty and the ambiguities that are going on in our life, God will bring to pass what he's promised. He's the one to be trusted and depended on. That's how I'm going to live. Is that how you're going to live? Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the great God who keeps your word.
from the beginning to the end, you do exactly what you promised. Help us to trust you in our ambiguities, in our disobedience, in our good days, in our successes, in our strengths, in our weaknesses. No matter whether the world is going up or down, you will achieve all your promises through the Lord Jesus. Help us to trust you today and have confidence in you. Amen.